Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. God supernaturally created the heavens and the earth. God supernaturally gave Abraham and Sarah a son well past childbearing age. God parted the Red Sea again supernaturally. And if you listen to some today, you get the impression that God is still in the supernatural business. If you watch Christian television, they'll talk about God supernaturally healing people and even going so far as to say that God sometimes even raises the dead. Now, I do not doubt that the Bible records God working supernaturally, but I'd like to ask a question. Is that the only way he works? Does God work some other way? Does he work through natural means as well as supernatural means? Must he always work dramatically? Or might he just work in some subtle, natural way? Well, my answer to that is, of course, God can work through natural means as well as supernatural means. But what does that look like? How would he go about doing that? And what is it we need to know for us to see God working in that way? What I mean by that is if we prayed for a miracle and the miracle happened, we would know that. But is there something we could do to see God work in a natural way? Well, I think the answer to that is yes. There are a number of things we could do. But one of the greatest illustrations of that in the Scripture is in Genesis chapter 24. So will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 24 as we look at God's working in a very natural way. Now, I very often begin by reading the whole passage I'm going to speak on. In this case, if I do that, we're going to be here for quite a while. There are 67 verses in this chapter. It is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. Now, that's significant. Anytime an author is writing something, and he gives an inordinate amount of space to one subject, then you know that for, from his point of view, that's important. And it's important to fulfill the purpose he's trying to make in whatever he's writing. So one of the ways you can figure out what the author's trying to say is just look at the amount of material he gives to one particular subject. In this case, it's the marriage of Isaac. It's finding a bride for him. So apparently, when Moses wrote this, he thought this is important. Pay attention. I'm going to go into great detail to explain to you how this happened. Now, having said that, let me suggest that what I'm going to do is walk through the passage. And in some places, we're going to run through the passage and explain what's going on here. 
But to give you some kind of an interview uh, overview, it starts with Abraham coming up with a proposal to get a bride for his son Isaac. He gives that responsibility to his servant. Most of this chapter is taken up with what the servant did with that proposal. In the first place, he came up with a plan to find the right bride for Isaac. And then, after he found her, we have to have the permission of her family for her to go and marry Isaac. So those three parts are the basic thrust of this chapter. Abraham comes up with a proposal, his servant comes up with a plan, and the parents of the bride give their permission. So that's sort of the outline of the story. But let's look at it in a little more detail. Let's begin with the first couple of verses. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now let's pause there. This is that first part of the passage I mentioned as Abraham's proposal, which is simply to have his son go find a wife, I'm sorry, his servant, go find a wife for his son. Now, it starts out telling us Abraham was an old man. Uh, We can put two and two together and figure out that he was about 140 years old when this happened. People lived a little longer than, than they do now. So he calls his oldest servant in, and says, put your hand under my thigh. Now, that just strikes me as very strange. Uh, I think he's making an oath, and this might be something like saying, put your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. You're going to take an oath. Only the fact that he puts it under the thigh has to do with uh, his loins, as some commentators point out, and that has to do with his descendants. So Abraham is aware that you've got to Take a note that you're going to go find a bride because what I have in mind is God promised me that I would have lots of descendants and I've only got one son. So he's got to have the wife that's going to produce all of these descendants and it's going to be your responsibility to go find her. Now, then he says, here's the proposal. You cannot find a Canaanite. You must go to my people. Now, the scripture teaches that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him for the gift of eternal life, you know for certain that you're going to heaven because you believe he died for you and he arose from the dead, and you're trusting what he did, not what you do. You're a believer. Now, some people believe that Christ died and Christ arose, but they haven't trusted him to get them to heaven. They're trusting the fact that they live a good life. That won't do got to be that you trust Christ. If you do that, then the Bible says you ought to marry someone else who believes that. And you ought to be very careful not to marry an unbeliever. There's a verse tucked away in the book of 2 Corinthians that says you should not be unequally yoked together. 
technically, that verse is not primarily talking about marriage. I know it applies to marriage, and we use it like that all the time, but the context is really talking about something a little different. God does not want you to be yoked in any relationship unequally, meaning that one of you is a believer and the other is not. Because if that happens, very often the unbeliever starts impacting the believer rather than the other way around. I read once of a man trying to explain this, and he talked about the fact that in Israel he saw a camel yoked up with a donkey, and it just didn't work. It didn't fit. The yoke wasn't made for two unequal animals. You need two camels or two mules or two horses, but you don't yoke a camel with a donkey. Well, God says a believer should marry a believer. Now, that's the proposal, and he lays all this responsibility on the servant. Let's pick it up at verse 5. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Now let me pause here for a second. If you'll recall, Abraham started out in Ur of the Chaldees. That's modern Iraq. He then went up what is modern Turkey and came down to what is modern Palestine. When this story takes place, they're in Palestine, the land promised to them, the land God promised to give Abraham and his descendants. So Abraham is saying to his servant, I want you to go all the way back to Ur, or Haran. I want you to go all the way back to Iraq. And the servant says, oh, that's cute. I can just see me doing that. Yeah, I'm going to truck over there and say, hey, I got this guy for you to marry over here in Palestine. That's not going to work. So I tell you what, let me take Isaac with me. Maybe he can do a better job than I can to convince her to be his wife. I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, would you send your servant to go find a bride for your son? Or would you send your son to go convince the girl of his choice to marry him? And so Abraham then responds to that. Verse 6, and Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from your oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now what is significant is that Abraham says, no, you can't take my son out of the land, but I'm going to trust God to provide the bride. And that's the point of verse 10. I will, God told me he was going to give me the land of Palestine, and he was going to give it to my descendants. So Isaac's here and he stays here. And I believe the Lord is going to work all this out. He's going to send an angel to figure all that out. But Isaac stays here. All right? So that's the proposal. Have fun. Go find my 
bride. But what you need to understand, uh, Isaac's bride, but what you need to understand in all of this is that Abraham is trusting God to fulfill his promise that he would give the land to his descendants. That's the whole point of this section of the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, that's the whole point of the Old Testament. And so Abraham is saying, nope, Isaac is not going anywhere. All right, that's the first movement in the passage. Abraham commissions his servant to go find a bride for his son. The bulk of the passage, starting in verse 10, and actually going all the way down through verse 61, is, I'm sorry, verse, I should say verse 28. We've got to get the permission in here later. But from 10 to 28, we have the servant going back to Abraham's homeland and trying to find a bride. So this is a long, involved passage, but very fascinating. Verse 10 says, The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all of his master's goods were in his hand, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia and the city of Nahor, which is uh, probably a, another name for Haran, which is where Abraham came from. So he took ten camels. For that length of a journey, that would have been normal to take all the supplies that he would have needed, to take the people that would have attended him and uh, went with him. That was very normal. As a matter of fact, I read that in that part of the land, if you're going to take a trip with camels, 10 camels is still the norm today. So nothing unusual about that. Just plain old ordinary, pack the car and let's go. Verse 11, And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, when the women would go to draw water. Now, between verses 10 and 11, we make the whole trip back to Haran. He doesn't, doesn't spend any time describing that. Boom, they're there. And when they get there, they come to this city, and uh, the servant says, hmm, I got to figure out how I'm going to find this woman that's going to be Isaac's bride. So how am I going to do that? Here's what he does. Pay very close attention. If you are single, if you are looking for a mate, pay very close attention. Verse 12, And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please give me your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to your master. Here's the plan. I'm going to go where women assemble. <laughs> I've often said to young people, you want to find a mate, you've got to go where they are, you know, the singles are. At any rate, uh, he's going to go where the single women go because it's their duty to carry water. And he says, Lord, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to ask for a drink of water. 
And if I ask a woman for a drink of water, and she offers to give my, the camels a drink of water, that's going to be the one. What a plan. We're going to do this over a drink of water. Now let me tell you what is real interesting about this. Do you know how much water a camel drinks? 25 gallons. How many camels does he have? How many gallons is that? 250 gallons. I was sitting meditating on this passage, as a matter of fact, this afternoon, thinking about teaching it, and I thought, how am I going to convey what 25 gallons is? So I pulled out my trusty iPhone and said, how much does a normal bathtub hold? And that quick, I found out. Would you care to guess what the normal, now there are, there are large bathtubs, but the average bathtub in America filled to the rim holds, guess how much? 50? 24 gallons. So this woman is going to have to fill buckets to fill 10 bathtubs full of water. That's the plan. Now, this is a rather ingenious little idea. Let me just tell you that this would indicate, first of all, if she said, I'll, I'll water the camels, what does that say about her? It shows that she has some sensitivity to the camels, that she's uh, kind, that she's industrious, to say the least, because she understood what that would mean. Uh, Probably also indicates that she was a pretty healthy gal to do all of that. Uh, she was willing to do this for a stranger, which says something about her readiness to work and to serve. Uh, I think it just it tests a whole bunch of things. Uh, it, it indicates her hospitality, her kindness, her willingness to meet a stranger, uh, and... And as we're going to see in a minute, she did all this without, without any hesitation and without the least grumbling. Now, let me pause before we go any further. If you are single, or if you know somebody who is single and you're giving them advice on finding a mate, let me make a suggestion. Do exactly what this fella did. Pray. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to parachute right out of the clouds. God isn't going to produce him supernaturally, or her supernaturally. Uh, but pray. Ask the Lord to bring the right person along. And then I would suggest this. Come up with a test or two. It's not a bad idea. Matter of fact, uh, I would suggest that you sit down someday and think through the kind of mate you want, and write out a list of qualifications. Is that a good idea? Now, the problem with that is you can get so many qualifications in there that he doesn't exist, so be careful. And, and I hate to put it like this. This is going to turn the girls off, but the guys will understand immediately. It's sort of like buying a car. You say, now there, I'm going to go buy a car, and there are certain things I've got to have. I've got to have four doors. 
because of the people I have to haul around, I gotta have four doors. I would, I gotta have an air conditioner. I live in Southern California, that's an absolute must. Can't have a car without an air conditioner. So there are certain things you gotta have. Now there's some other things you would like to have. I'd like a white car. Last time I bought a car, I decided I want a white one. I've never done anything like that in my life, but I want a white one. Now, would I have been willing to negotiate that if I found the right car for the right price? Yeah, and I found a steal of a deal. I mean a steal of a deal. I paid $8,000 for this car that uh, should have cost much more than that, and I got a deal and a half, and that thing will last forever. It's got 180,000 miles on it. It's just now broke in. Um, but I had some other qualifications, and the one was that, that it'd be white. But I thought, you know, I'd settle for silver. I, kinda, I had a silver car once. I, I think I'd, buy, I'd settle for silver. But it's got to have X, Y, and Z, all right? Now, that's the kind of thing you ought to do with a list. You ought to say, here are certain things I won't compromise on that. The person has to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And... Then there's some things that yeah, might be negotiable. But my suggestion is simply this, that you pray and come up with a plan. Is that a good idea? Yes. And all the married people said, where were you when I was single? <laughs> let's don't go there. All right, so that was the plan. Now let's see if this plan works. And we've got to pick up the story at where? Verse 15. And it happened, look at this. Before he had finished praying, before he finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Melchah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with a pitcher on her shoulder. He's sitting here praying, and before he can finish praying, Bam, here comes Rebecca, and she has a pitcher of water. Actually, at this point, it's empty on her shoulder. Now, in some ancient societies, the women carried the pitcher of water on their head. In some, they carried it on their shoulder. In this one, she happened to be carrying it on her shoulder. All right. Uh, now it's going to get real interesting. By the way, all these names in that verse means that she's a second cousin to Isaac. She's going to marry her cousin. That's interesting. Back in those days, you could do that. Verse 16, now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin no man had known. And she went down into the well to fill the pitcher and came up. So this well wasn't on the top of the ground. She had to go down a flight of stairs to get to the well and come back up the flight of stairs. Now, she's going to fill 10 bathtubs. And in every case, she's got to go down how many times? All right. Verse 17. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little drink of water from your pitcher. And she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let the pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Wow. Without hesitation, she said, I see you have 10 camels. 
I'll just give them some water to drink. Look at verse 20. She quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. Incredible. So he says what? I mean, what, what was the plan? That she would feed, offer to feed the water the camels, right? So we got her, right? Look at the next verse. And the man wandering at her remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. I thought you said. Very important point. If you're looking for a mate, be careful of the first impression. He didn't, he didn't function on the first impression. Get to know this person. So he just says, all right, so far so good. Well, what else is there? That was what you said. Well, there's plenty more. So, verse 22. And it was when the camels had finished drinking and the man took a gold nose ring. <clears throat> Is that what that said? That's what that said. Weighed half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist, weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? So, out of gratitude for feeding, or watering, I keep saying feeding, uh, watering the camels, he gave her a ring for her nose. I think when we see people with a ring in their nose, a lot of Christians think, good night. That's pagan. Well, Rebecca had a ring in her nose and two bracelets on one on each arm, or maybe two on one arm. Uh, at any rate, she, he said, well, tell me, who, tell, me, tell me who you are. Remember, Abraham said she had to be from the right family. You know? So... Tell me about all this. And tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for me to lodge? I want to come and spend some time with this. I want to see what we got going here. So she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough to room uh, and room to lodge. So she said, come on. We're ready to put up your whole party. Now, I don't know how many people were in the party, but it was more than him. So she says, come on, we'll put you all up. So the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord. At this point, he says, you know, Lord, I uh, think you've done it. think you've done it with a drink of water. You might have just done it. So he bows down. And he worships the Lord, which probably in this case means he simply thanked the Lord and praised the Lord. Matter of fact, that's what the next verse says. Verse 27, blessed be the Lord of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and truth toward my master. As for me being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Now, the Hebrew word translated truth in verse 27 
is actually the word for faithful. And what he's saying is, Lord, you have been faithful to the covenant you made with Abraham. You promised him that he would be given the land and his descendants would have it. And his only son is Isaac. And now, being in the way, on way to his homeland, being in the way, you have led me, and I take it you have provided a bride for Isaac. Theologians have a word for this kind of activity, and the word is providence. That God works providentially. And that's simply a fancy word to say that God often works through natural means. He doesn't always work supernaturally. I don't deny that God works miracles. There are certainly plenty of those in the Bible. But God also works through some just very natural means. I met this girl at the water cooler is the kind of thing that's going on here. And one thing led to another, and lo and behold, they got married. You ever heard stories like that? And the person was praying that the Lord would lead them to someone, and they met them in the most inconspicuous way. They met at the water cooler, and that's what happened. So he says, all right, Lord, I think you're in this. Let's keep going. So that brings us to, we got to get permission now for her to go. So, uh, verse 28 says, The young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now Rebekah, verse 29, had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, plural, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, Thus the man spoke to me, and he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well, and he says, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Now, uh, this is her brother, Laban. And... Um, he comes out to greet the servant. And he also notices, wow, look at what he gave her. He looks at the bracelets, the gold bracelets. Now, Laban is a significant party of what happens next, but in the book of Genesis, he becomes very significant later. And this might just be the first clue that he is a little greedy, that he eyeballed the jewelry, and that's what impressed him. At any rate, they go to the house. And so he said, I am Abraham's servant. Uh, now what happens next in verses 34 all the way through verse 39, I'm sorry, 49, is a repetition of everything that's happened so far. So I'm rather than read that passage, it's so long, and it's nothing but repetition, so I'm going to summarize what's going on here. In these verses, uh, the servant tells Rebecca's family 
about uh, Abraham and Isaac. He mentions Abraham's wealth. Uh, matter of fact, what I skipped was they got to the house, they prepared a meal, and he said, well, before I eat, I've got to tell you the story. Sounds like something I would do. Got to tell the story. Then, but I want you to look at verse 35. And the Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. I want you to know, Abraham is one wealthy dude. He's got plenty of money. We can take care of your daughter. Uh, the other thing he does in this passage is he mentions uh, that Isaac is uh, uh, in, in, in line for all of this. So he talks about Abraham, he talks about Isaac, uh, talks about Isaac's birth, talks about Isaac's status, talks about the oath that he took with Abraham, and he talked about how God providentially led them uh, him to them. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, all of this is repetition. So uh, we've already heard the story, so I'm not going to repeat it. I want to make a comment on repetition. There is often repetition in the scripture. In this case, the retelling of the story is not just repetition for repetition's sake. I mentioned at the beginning that this is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis that uh, the repeating of this material is significant in the mind of the author. He's not doing this uh, for no reason. That the retelling of the story is to re-emphasize what's going on, namely that God is leading him to find a bride for Isaac because God made a promise to Abraham. And that's the point of this whole section of Genesis, and for that matter, the whole Old Testament. So, they um, hear all of this, and then they respond to it. So let's drop down to about verse 50. And Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot, so, uh, we cannot speak to you, either good or bad. Now, this is very important. They said, they apparently knew the Lord. I mean, that's the whole point. We've got to have somebody that knows the Lord. And they said, all right, based on what you've said, we believe the Lord is in this. So we can't speak good or evil. We just accept the fact that the Lord's in this. So, verse 51, they said, here is Rachel. Uh, take her. Let her go be your master's wife, as the Lord has spoken. Very important. The Lord is in this. You see that? The Lord has spoken. So it came to pass, when Abraham's servant heard these words, that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. This is the third time he's prayed in this passage, and he is constantly depending on the Lord, and when he hears that, all right, it's really working. He praises the Lord again. So he acknowledges the Lord. Verse 53. 
Then the servant brought out the jewelry of silver, the jewelry of gold, clothing, and gave them to Rebekah, and gave her precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. They had a wedding party, uh, maybe a bachelor party, maybe a bride's party, maybe, well, we're preparing for the wedding. You get the drift. Then he arose in the morning and said, send me away to your master. I mean, he's found the gal. Uh, they've accepted the fact that this is of the Lord, so let's get on with it. Let's get back and have a wedding. But her brother and her mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten, and after that she may go. Now that's a reasonable request, isn't it? Can you imagine some stranger showing up and telling this tale, and they are convinced it's of the Lord, and you're going to leave within 24 hours? Less than 24 hours. I mean, give us a break. I mean, this is our daughter. At least, well, let's have a going away party and give us at least a week, maybe 10 days. Perfectly reasonable request. Verse 56, and he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way and sent me away so that I may, and send me away so that I may go to my master. And they said, Well, we don't want to do that. Well, how are you going to solve this? By the way, I can't help but make the observation. It almost seems like a universal principle. Where there's a wedding, there is a conflict. And those who've been through a wedding or two say, Amen. Well, we got a good old conflict. You want to go right now? And we want her to stay right now. At least 10 days. Give us a time to say bye. That's no big deal. Now, how do you settle wedding disputes? I'm going to tell you what I have done in performing weddings for better than 50 years. I performed my first wedding in 1963. And I've performed a few weddings since. And I've seen my share of difficulties with a wedding. Weddings, at least most of the ways they're done today, are a major production. So when there's a conflict, what do you do? How would you like for me to give you the way to solve every conflict in every wedding, no matter what the conflict is? Say, man, I've been married too long. I don't even need to know that. But yeah, but you've got children and they have children and, you know, you need to know this. I have a rule. This is the rule I've practiced for 50 years. If they ask me, this is what I say. I don't know, I don't remember knowing that it was in this passage. I just knew that's what you do. And lo and behold, I then found this passage. Here's what happens. Verse 58. They called Rebekah, and they said to her, uh, Will you go with him, this man? And she said, I will go. Do you get it? Who made the decision? She did. Now let me explain as carefully as I possibly can, as clearly as I possibly can. 
A wedding belongs to the bride. Whatever she says goes. Now, as a general rule, everybody accepts that except her mother. Uh, that's the major source of conflict. But uh, the rule is, they ask me, I tell them no uncertain term. She makes the decision. I tell him that it's her day. She makes the decision. So that's what they did. And what did she say? Let's go. No hesitation. No delay. This is quite a gal. She's willing to leave everything she's ever known because she's convinced the Lord is in this. So they sent her away that day, and she took with her her maid and her sister, and I'm sorry, uh, and Rebecca. They sent away Rebecca, their sister, and the nurse and Abraham's servant and his men, and later in the passage it's obvious she took her maid as well. And they blessed Rebekah, and they said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants prosper, and the gate of those who hate them. Now if you've been with me as I've been going through the book of Genesis, what does that remind you of? May you have many descendants. Where have we heard this before? That's what God promised Abraham. This is an echo of God's promise to Abraham that you just have many descendants. Back in chapter 22, Abraham was told something similar. So, then Rebekah and her maids... Uh, previously it said her nurses, now the maids are in there, arose and rode on the camels and followed the man and they departed. So, this part of the passage is they gave permission, she granted her permission, and they all took off to go meet Isaac. Now, there's a fourth part to the passage and that's the meeting of these two. The denouement, the climax of the passage. So we are told in verse 62 that Isaac was sitting under a tree, uh, sitting in the south. What's important is verse 63. He was meditating in the field in the evening. Very interesting. I think the Bible puts a premium on meditating, only the meditation is not like Eastern meditation where you clear your mind. It's the exact opposite. Meditation in the Bible is you fill your mind thinking about Scripture. So Isaac is meditating. Verse 64, And Rebekah lifts up her eyes, and she saw Isaac, and she dismounted from her camel. Now, I am told that that was the custom of the day, that she was the one that should dismount, and she did. Verse 65, And she said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And again, that would have been the custom of the day. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And that's all it says. 
This time, it's not repeated. When he told the family, he repeated everything. This time, we're just told, and he repeated it all. And he told him everything. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. Was Sarah still living? No. She passed away by this time. Matter of fact, she had been dead three years. So he takes her to his mother's tent. And he took Rebecca and she became his wife. Pause. Stop. They got married. <laughs> Sight unseen, so to speak. They got married. Now, if I had time, and I don't, I'd love to talk about what constitutes marriage. Uh, the book of Malachi talks about marriage being a covenant between two people. And it is that. I think it is companionship. Uh, that is, God saw that Adam was alone, and that was not good, so he created a companion, and it was cohabitation. Now, what is significant about all that is that there's a covenant involved. And I once did some study of this. What constitute marriage? It's a legal relationship. Uh, and what, what constitutes that legality varies from culture to culture. In our culture, you go to the courthouse, you get a marriage certificate license, and you have a ceremony, and you say, I do, and there's a legal contract, and that, that has all kinds of legal ramifications. But they got married. What happened next? They went on a honeymoon, right? I find this very interesting. Look at verse 67. And he loved her. He married her. Then he loved her. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives. Not, go marry the woman you love. Let that sink in. The way we function is you fall in love and then you get married and live happily ever after. Right? So love becomes before marriage. Now, I'm not opposed to that. That's a good idea. <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with that. However, however, that does not occur in the Bible, with the possible exception of the Song of Solomon. But what does occur in the Bible is you get married, and very often in the Scripture, the parents picked out the bride and the groom. And then your responsibility is to love the person you marry, not marry the person you love. If we got married with that in mind, it would change some things, right? Because marriage today is based on, well, I fell in love. Well, let me just tell you, married people fall out of love. Now what? Well, you've got to learn to love. And that is... Uh, a choice. So he married her, then he loved her. I don't, I don't know that he had time to fall in love with her before that, but they loved each other. And then it makes a very interesting comment. Isaac was comforted after his mother's death, implying that he was very close to his mother, and she died, 
And now he's alone, as far as female companionship is concerned, so to speak. And now she fills that void. And he's comforted after his mother had been dead for three years. Wow. Is that running through a passage of Scripture or what? Did you get it? All right. In case you fell asleep. What this passage is saying, and this is very important, Abraham, believing God would fulfill his promise, commanded his servant to find a wife for Isaac among his people, and the servant, trusting the Lord for the right woman with a servant's heart, was providentially led to Rebekah. That's a big sentence, isn't it? That's the sum of this whole passage. And you've got to get all those elements to really understand what's going on in this passage, so let me spell them out very simply. Number one, uh, Abraham believed the Lord. And that's the reason this story is in the book of Genesis to begin with. God promised Abraham the land through his descendants, and that means Isaac. So in order for that to happen, Isaac has to have a bride, and Abraham is believing that God is going to provide that bride. And the servant trusted God as well. So one of the things you need to see in this passage is the faith of these men, that they were trusting the Lord. The second thing you need to see is that God was faithful to fulfill his promise. He promised to uh, give Abraham multiple descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. But that means his one and only son has to have a bride. And so God is faithful to his promise to provide that bride. And that leads me to the third and final point, and that is simply the way he did it. He didn't work a miracle. Rebecca didn't parachute out of the sky. He did it by having a servant meet her at the water cooler. God works supernaturally, but God works providentially, simply meaning that God works through natural means. When... We trust him, and we pray, and believe that he's going to fulfill his promise. So I'm tempted to say, if you're not married, this is what you need to do. That would be a direct application of this passage, would it not? That you need to learn to say, Lord, I need the right mate. Got a few ideas, write them down. This is what I'm praying for. And then let God providentially bring you to that person. But I think this is way beyond that. I think God providentially works in our lives. I don't know how many times somebody's come to this church and said to me, wow, you know, there is no such thing as an accident. I just uh, happened to come here, and lo and behold, wow, the Lord really wanted me here. You know, 
for one reason or another. So this is what I want you to put in your pocket or purse and I want you to walk out with, and it is simply this. God works through normal means when we trust him. When we are praying, when we are trusting, he will work in all kinds of natural ways to fulfill his will in our lives. Most of you know that just a little over five years ago, I suddenly had a spinal cord injury. Out of the blue, I could not walk. I could not sit up on the side of a bed. I had an abscess in my spinal column, not in my tooth, that wiped out my legs. I live in Santa Monica, so I was at the UCLA Santa Monica Hospital. I spent a week there, and they transferred me to the UCLA in-house facility on the main campus and tried to teach me to stand up again. During that ordeal, I said, Lord, got an idea. Heal me. (laughs) (laughs) Or bring people into my lives that I need to do what I have to do. So as most of you know, I spent the next, what, nine months or a year in a wheelchair. My attitude at that point was, if Franklin Delano Roosevelt could run the country from a wheelchair, I could pastor a church from a wheelchair. So they wheeled me up on the platform and I spoke from a wheelchair. It didn't affect my lungs or my mouth, and so I preached. But let me tell you what happened. According to my insurance and so forth, I should have gone to rehab at UCLA. It's a long story, but we weren't impressed with that. And somehow we found out that there was, in our opinion, a better program at Northridge Hospital. Now that meant I had to get special permission to get outside of our insurance plan. And lo and behold, that happened. So I ended up going through rehab at Northridge Hospital. At Northridge Hospital, in the parking lot, as I recall, we met some lady who told us about something else. The insurance is going to run out. And after that, you need some place to go. And one thing led to another, and I ended up at the Brown Center of Achievement on the campus of Cal State Northridge. So next month will be five years I have gone to the program at Cal State Northridge. It's an incredible program. It's designed for students who are training to be trainers, and they need guinea pigs. I have to pay a fee, but uh, the supervisors evaluate what I need, write it in a chart, and the students make me go through all these drills. So I can walk today. I went from the wheelchair to a walker, and from a walker to two canes, and from two canes to one cane, And I can actually walk without this thing now. Now, I believe the Lord providentially led me to the Brown Center of Achievement. There's no doubt in my mind that had I not found that and had the insurance run out, I wouldn't have had a clue as to where to go. And I do not think I'd be walking today. So here's the picture. I prayed, and I believe the Lord 
providentially brought people into my life, and there are others, so that I'm now able to walk again. So trust the Lord. Pray. He providentially will provide. Father, thank you. Thank you that you work. Thank you that you work in our lives in all kinds of ways, sometimes supernaturally and sometimes naturally. But thank you that you're working in our lives. By your Holy Spirit to conform us to your Son, and by your Holy Spirit to providentially provide for those things that we need. Teach us, Father, to trust you, to work. In Jesus' name, amen.